Welcome to Rails with Jason. If you enjoyed today's episode and want more Rails tips and advice, head over to codewithjason.com, where I keep all my Rails articles and videos. Now on to the episode. Hey, today I'm here with Brittany Martin, lead web developer at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust and host of the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast. Brittany, welcome to the show. It is so great to be here, Jason. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's like a super group, you know, when people from famous bands get together and make their own band. It's us, uh, both podcast hosts, on a podcast together. Yep, and we'll see how that works out when you have host, <laughs> host with host. Yeah, I think it'll be great. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So as you noted, I am the lead web developer for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, which is the largest nonprofit in Pittsburgh. And so I basically work on our ticketing and festival web applications. So a good example is during the pandemic, our very large arts festival went completely online. And so just putting in the backend infrastructure to make that possible so that our vendors are still able to sell their art and we're still able to create an experience for our patrons to believe that they're still at the art festival is kind of what I do. I am also the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5 by 5 network. It's been about two years as the host and I've gotten to interview a lot of really great people. You, in fact, Jason, were one of my earliest interviews, so I will always appreciate you for that. And um, the other thing that I'm kind of known for is that I, my alter ego is Norma Skates. I play in referee and I'm the president of my roller derby league uh, based in Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's a hobby that, uh, that I think is really cool. And it's not one that you hear a whole lot. For whatever reason, developers are always into like karate and woodworking. Like those are the two that like everybody's a karate person or a woodworking person for whatever reason. Roller derby, that's a that's a unique one. It's pretty cool. It really is. And I think the fun part is that there are developers that do it. And so I have a variety of stickers on the back of my helmet that are specifically for developers to laugh over. So I have a JSON sticker. And then my actual roller derby number is 200. Because when you hit me, I get back up with a status code of OK. And very few people find that hilarious. That's so. Funny. When I come across those people, I know they're my people. Yeah. Well, I love that when you can have just an inside joke that only you know about. Like, I I had this coworker who I worked with years ago, and whenever something bad would happen, he would say, oh, shallots. I don't know why. He would just say, oh, shallots. There's no story behind it. That was just him. He was kind of a quirky guy. But I really liked that quirk, and I kind of picked it up. And so I gave a conference talk where several times in the talk I said, oh, shallots, with no explanation whatsoever. And so people were probably just confused. That was just for my own amusement. Um, I'm curious, what exactly is roller derby? I think I used to know, but now I don't really know. Does it involve like uh, hurting people while you're on roller skates? Is that the idea? A little bit. So the basic premise is that each team fields four players onto the rink. It goes in two-minute bursts, so it's a great hit workout. 
But the way it works is one player has a star on their helmet and they're literally the ball. So people will show up for the first time looking at the rink, trying to figure out where the ball is. No, there's an actual person who is the ball. And they're basically trying to get around the rink as many times as possible. While uh, the other four players that are on their team that are on the rink are called blockers and they're supposed to block that person. Now, one of the blockers wears a stripe on their helmet. And what's cool about that is if the jammer, the person with the star on their helmet, is in trouble and they can't get through they can actually take the star off their helmet and give it to the one blocker who has a stripe on their helmet and that person converts into being the jammer and that person is usually me so the person with the stripe is called the pivot and I kind of like the metaphor around it um it's just kind of how I am in general like I like to be that person who will bail you out of trouble but I don't want to be the person that everyone has their eyes on right from the very beginning. I like to be the sneaky one, you know, like things are starting to fall apart, you know, kind of throw me in there to bail you out. (laughs) Does anybody ever tell you that that Robert roller derby reminds them of Quidditch? No, I've actually never heard that. Hmm. That was the first thing that came to my mind with these names of these positions and stuff like that. It reminds me of bludger and, and all those other, I forget what there is, but, uh, it's, it sounded similar to me. Um, okay, so the topic that we're going to talk about today is refactoring, which is a topic near and dear to my heart because um, it's something that's undervalued and it's one of those things that I keep like rediscovering that I didn't really, I didn't really understand it until, well, I keep going through, through these, these cycles and I might explain it like this. Every few years... I come to a realization that I never really understood object-oriented programming before. And I'm like, oh man, I never understood what this was really about before, but now I do. And then like two years later, I'll be like, oh, I actually didn't understand before, but now I do. And then two years later again. And refactoring for me is a little bit similar, but to a lesser degree. And so, so this is a topic that I really enjoy talking about. So, I completely agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. Every time I read one of Sandy Metz's books, it kind of opens my eyes to that I didn't understand something before. And so I agree with you that often I think I know what OOP is. And then just reading a certain article or coming across a piece of code, it, it definitely will alter the way I see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting how that happens. So you're going through a certain amount of refactoring on the application that you work on now, right? Yeah. So I thought it'd be interesting to discuss whether or not it's actually considered refactoring because I feel like refactoring as a definition should be pretty straightforward, but in some ways is almost an opinion. And so I'll walk you through the situation that I'm going through. So the application that I work on at work uses a third-party CRM that is specific for the arts industry. And they, for a long time, have been on a SOAP API. And so I've been at my job for at least five years. And when I got hired, I was warned that the SOAP API was going to get deprecated, which no surprise there, and that I was going to need to move all the code to the REST API, which makes sense. But the REST API was not available. And so a couple years in, finally, the REST API was debuted by the vendor, and they gave us a sunset date that they were, are actually going to, now they, they work very much in a water, waterfall development, that they were going to send us a script that would actually uninstall our SOAP client, which I find kind of amusing. But anywho, so the code that we ha- that I inherited 
is very much written to handle SOAP and XML and all of that. And so what I'm currently doing right now is rewriting the connection to use the REST API. And so my question for you, Jason, is I'm taking this opportunity to take some code that is very convoluted that wraps around the SOAP API and I'm rewriting it. I've, I've rewritten it twice and I've just not been happy with it because I basically tried to translate it exactly from what it was in the SOAP in order to work with the rest. And so for this third time, what I'm doing is I'm trying to not look at the SOAP code whatsoever and then just completely rewrite how the application interfaces with test. It's called Tessitura using the REST API. Would you consider that refactoring? Good question. So my definition of refactoring is when you change the code without changing the behavior. And so I guess in order to answer whether or not I would consider that refactoring is whether the behavior is being changed. So like from the, so is this an API? I'm, I'm curious about the nature of the interaction of this API. Is, is this an API that surfaces endpoints into your application or is this API code that consumes somebody else's API? Oh, great question. This is an API that we are using directly in order to render the services onto the website. So a good example is if you are excited about attending, let's say Hamilton, uh, when you go onto the site, we have the Tessitore itself is installed in our environment. So our box office staff is able to use it directly using their interface. We on the website side are consuming their API and pushing information to their API in order to pull through seat information. So the patrons are able to select their seat, purchase it, and then be able to view their order history. I see. So two-way communication with this API. Bingo. It's the heart and soul of the application. Got it. Okay. And they made a change from SOAP to REST. So now you're you're doing all the same stuff, but interacting with their API in a different way. Is that right? Exactly. I think the added complication as well is that they did not take the SOAP API endpoints and translate them into REST. They took the opportunity to also change how some functionality works. So I might have had a SOAP call that was very hefty before that did a lot of things for me, but now they've broken it out into a series of REST calls. So to answer your original question, the idea is that when I translate it from SOAP to REST, the patron should have no idea that anything has changed. So behavior should be the same. Yeah. Okay. This is really interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious, how long do you have to make this switch? I've been making this switch for years. Really? Okay. Yes. And it's been, I, I did a talk at Paris RV about this, about whether or not you are responsible for testing your vendor's API. And the reason I bring this up is that we have filed so many bugs against the REST API because they consume their own APIs as well for their own SaaS product. But unfortunately, we are ahead of them in terms of implementing their REST API. And so we often find performance issues or just we actually found some hard-coded values that they had put in their code base by accident, things like that. Oh, no. And so we end up, <laughs> at this point, I'm ready for them to introduce a bug bounty, which won't happen. But um, 
the question is whether or not are you responsible as a developer who's consuming an API to test whether or not the API is returning the correct information? Because unfortunately, when you do experience downtime, your patrons, you know, assume it's your fault and not your vendor. So we've gotten into an interesting situation where we now, every time we upgrade our system, we have to test ourselves to make sure that they're still sending the correct response across. And that for, you know, for me means that I have to delete my VCR cassette tapes regularly because even if I make zero changes, if they make a change, it actually might introduce a breaking change for me. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like they have some poor API practices because if you have an API that other people depend on, you shouldn't be making changes to that API. If if something needs to change, you should add another version so that people can can opt into that new version, but the, the behavior shouldn't just change out from under their feet. Right. Yeah, okay. And you might have said, but like, when is the sunset date for the SOAP version? So originally it was supposed to be next year, but I think with the pandemic, things will get pushed off. So I have a little bit of time. And the way that we approach this, which I think is interesting, is knowing that our entire system is dependent upon it, we switch the API calls that were on the outside of the actual e-commerce path. So anything that was kind of fairly minor, so like maybe resetting your password, that's something that we attacked very early on. And so a lot of that low hanging fruit is now gone. And now I'm at the point where I'm starting to convert soap to rest based on actual e-commerce, where if something is critically wrong, it could be a huge sales impact for us, which Mm -hmm. is a bit scary. And what is interesting too, and as I noted, is that I've made some changes and they've worked well in my local development environment, but then we deploy them out to staging and production and we discover that there's a real performance issue. And so I'm very lucky in the fact that my boss does load tests, but you know, again, how much is that supposed to be on him to be on top of? Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds like you've approached it in a smart way regarding like doing those minor endpoints first where the risk is lower because then that still forces you to do all that like tricky stuff that you'd have to do anyway, like having both the APIs going at the same time and all that kind of stuff. And it gives you some practice with the easier stuff before you have to get to the hard stuff. How are you managing... How are you managing the switchover of those critical parts? Like, is it possible to do it bit by bit? Because the idea, of course, of like doing, of rewriting everything and then on one certain date doing a complete switchover, that seems terrifying. But is it possible to do it a little bit at a time? It is. I am trying to do it endpoint by endpoint and really trying to keep the behavior the same. I've considered wrapping some of the things in Flipper just so I can feature flag some of it. And of course, we're very much on top of Honey Badger just to see those errors come through. Now, because of the pandemic, we have far lower traffic. And so as I'm deploying out the recent REST changes, it's a little tough because we're just not getting that natural traffic to be able to see what's going on. But that's where the test suite comes in. So when I inherited this code base, all the tests were broken. It was a Rails 2 application that we upgraded to 4, and now it's currently at 6. And so I'm really just trying to write tests as I can to cover some of this functionality as I'm converting it over. But it's tough because you're not comparing it against an old test. You you just have the new test. Yeah, okay. Wow. It's Um, a lot. (laughs) Yeah. 
once you hear that I've been working on it for years, it kind of makes a little more sense. And I've made some decisions because I'm the only sole backend developer at the trust that I always kind of question, like whether or not it's the best approach. So I'm curious, um, have you written an API wrapper before? So I've, I've written code that consumes other people's APIs and I've written code that surfaces an application's behavior as an API for, for clients to consume. So I've done both of those things. What I haven't done is like a large scale change the, the way that you're doing. So, so I don't have experience with that particular thing. And, and I appreciate how much of a tricky task that must be. It's an interesting thing for us as well, because we're one of the only Ruby applications that consumes our API. So they currently ship with an SDK for C Sharp and Java. And so because we're the only ones who are using Ruby, currently all of the SOAP code lives within the application itself under lib. And then we have like a web services folder and that's where all that SOAP code lives. And so what I chose to do was I created a gem and I am putting all of the rest code in there. And I'm not really sh- like when I think about it, the entire purpose for me doing that, because it is a lot more annoying to update a gem and then have to update the code base itself. I have this hope that I will be able to contribute it back to the community. And if we ever spin up another application that would require integration with this API, I'm hoping having that gem at the ready is the, the best practice. Mm. Yeah, you know, I've gone down a similar path with stuff like that. Like, I wrote some code for the application I'm working on now that consumes CSVs. It, it consumes CSVs and it exports CSVs. I've used a couple CSV gems that are out there, at least as of a couple years ago. Didn't find anything that I thought was great. And so I thought, well, maybe I can make something that's better than the other CSV gems that are out there and open source it, etc. And so I went down the path of like extracting my CSV code to a gem. But I actually ended up reintegrating the code into my application for that exact reason you mentioned, which is like it's a total pain in the ass to have to test the code outside in the gem in the like dummy app or whatever, mm-hmm. which is the for for the listener's benefit when you're doing gem development you have to have an application that the gem can live inside of to test the gem's behavior. Um, at least if it's, if it's what they call a mounted gem, if, if my memory serves. That's um, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my gem was a mounted gem. Like it, it's not useful unless it's plugged into a rails application. So I had to test everything in this dummy app and then bring the gem into my application but then to a certain extent, I still had to test the gems. I still had to test the interaction of my gem with my application because I didn't need to test the gem code itself because that was already being tested inside the gem. But that's not a guarantee that the behavior that's enabled by the gem in my application works. So all that was just like a lot of friction. So I ended up bringing it back in. That makes a lot of sense to me. When I first came to the trust, I mentioned that the application was a Rails 2 application. The way that it works is uh, the application has a CMS, and that's a Rails engine. And so then that Rails engine was being loaded into a Rails engine, which is the logic around the website itself. And then that was being loaded into 
the main Rails application. And so one of the moves that I have done is I've eliminated that middle Rails engine. And really for the sole purpose that it was almost impossible to test to Do you mean you you eliminated the middle Rails engine by pulling that into the application code base? Bingo, exactly. So taking one layer away. Because the original intention was having that middle Rails engine as almost something that could be sold to another arts organization. And I totally see the the concept behind that, but I personally have never seen anyone monetize a Rails engine. And it's so difficult just because you would have to be so vigilant about staying updated and being on top of that, of like the vendors dependencies and whatnot. Have you ever seen a Rails engine monetized? The closest thing I can think of is something like Sidekick. Yeah. But I don't really think of that as a monetized Rails engine. I think of that as a product that happens to take the form. It's a product that has a gem. Yes. And we are Sidekick Pro users, and it is worth every penny. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, I had, oh, yeah. um, I think there was a certain way of of structuring rails applications at a certain period of time that was kind of like this when you say it's a rails 2 application that's interesting because i remember being at a rails conference in like 2011 or 2012 where somebody from pivotal labs was talking about this big application that they built and they organized it into like several if not dozens of rails engines and i was really new to rails and i guess kind of relatively new to programming uh, at that point. I, I'd been programming for several years already, but I was pretty like pretty new to like these ideas. Um, and I remember sitting in the audience and, and watching him talk about this and thinking, wow, that seems really cool. That's like a really good way to do it. Uh, maybe I should do it like this. And it, it seems like that was a popular way of doing things at that period of time. But I imagine probably a lot of people experienced the same pain that I did and that you did, which is that having that code in that separate gem introduces a lot of overhead to the development process. It really does. If you don't have an actual plan as to how you're going to share that code out to another code base, I just don't think it's a good idea to just assume that you're going to need it that way. Now with the, um, the API wrapper that I mentioned that I'm building for the rest API, I actually do see a use case for our festival websites because right now, if you visit our festival websites, we have no authentication system. There's no way to save like any sort of events that you're going to in these free festivals. And so if that is something I wanted to actually introduce into that code base, installing this rest API actually would work quite well. So it's setting myself up for success for a purpose that I could actually see happening. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, as I'm thinking more about APIs and stuff, I'm thinking about an experience I had at the last place I worked. It was it was a great place, and I worked with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with, and we did a lot of things in, in a smart way. Um, I, I started thinking about this because one thing that I think we we maybe did that wasn't great was we did have some parts of the application that were in a separate gem and it, and it had those overhead problems. But one thing that we did that, that I thought was really nice. And I wonder if you're doing it this way with your API code or, or doing it a different way is here's what we did. And there's some context that might be helpful. Um, it was a startup. 
that did, um, we made point of sale software for cannabis stores. And so part of selling cannabis products is that the state governments require really stringent tracking. They call it seed to sale tracking. So every single thing that happens needs to be tracked. And not only does it need to be tracked, but you need to register each action with an API that the state government provides. And what you might be not shocked to hear is that these state government APIs were garbage. They were just awful to work with. And so, and, and there were multiple ones of them. Like, uh, it was something like, you know, Oregon used one, Washington used a different one, California used the same one as Oregon. It was, it was all these different ones. And so we had to do, like, the same thing in a slightly different way depending on the state or we had to do a different thing or it was it was just a mess and so we had a way of like abstracting these differences away and even if there weren't different apis it's sometimes a good idea to do this so we had we had these i'll use the term library because i don't want to imply that you have to extract it into a gem we could have had a library that was part of our own application code if we if we wanted to but we had these libraries that abstracted the roughnesses of these state APIs so instead of instead of like constructing an http request and then sending it off every time we needed to do it we had a library that could say like the name of the api dot blah 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 and like have these really nice tidy methods which also helped keep the code more dry but that was great and then um just one more quick example in the application i work in now it has the ability to take payments and the the payment gateway we use is authorized.net which is famously awful i wish we yeah. could use stripe but there were like business reasons why we couldn't sort of use authorized.net, and it's it's just terrible. Um, their API is again, it's just nasty. And so I made this library that wraps the authorized.net API, and so I never have to interact directly with the authorized.net API. I just interact with my library, and there's all kinds of weird stuff. Like sometimes, for example, a payment will fail, but the authorized.net response will say it was successful and then buried way deep inside in this like really inappropriate part of the response it'll say oh by the way even though i said this payment was successful it failed and so i need to look for that and so rather than having those those um rough parts inside my actual application code i like shift all that stuff off to the side and like have this like you know it's like when you have a room in your house where you put like all your stuff that doesn't go anywhere else it's it's like that and then the rest of the house can be tidy so are you doing anything like that kind of thing wrapping the api interactions or or is it inside the application or how are you doing that parts yeah that is such a good question because our api also does some goofy things so if you decide that you want to donate while you are purchasing tickets which is wonderful it will actually return that value back to me as a negative number and so you would 
which is not good. <laughs> you don't want to return that as a negative number against the order total. And what they're trying to do is make it seem like that person owes negative $10, like they're in debt of $10. So in my API, of course, I'm flipping that around so that they owe us that $10. So we do have a lot of interactions where we are taking things that they are doing and kind of manipulating it before we're actually presenting that to the end user. Um, another funny example is they have some misspellings in their API. And so I have to correct those as they come through. That's and then, my favorite. When stuff is just misspelled, it's like... Did you not have a dictionary available when you were building this thing? I don't know if you agree with, uh, you probably do agree with this. When I create migrations, I probably stare at those for a good five minutes just to make sure they are correct. Now, granted, you can roll them back, of course, but I take, you know, creating database fields very seriously. And so I agree with you. I could see a misspelling in the code base, but an actual misspelling in your actual database fields just absolutely baffles me. Yeah, because then you have to live with that for for the rest of the application's life, or you have to rename it, and that gets more expensive the more time passes. Well, I like to believe that the current misspelling that they have in the SOAP API is that they're just going to deprecate the SOAP API because of that misspelling. So. <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, to also further your point, uh, when we do get an error back from the API, it actually sends back the status code of 200. And then I have to dig into it to actually get that error code. Well, like they don't return an error code. They send back an error message. And so what I end up having to wrap in my own code is based on the error message, what error code should they have actually sent me? So yes, there there is definitely some custom work that I'm having to do around that API. Yeah. Yeah. It seems quite often the case. Uh, Third-party APIs are often really rough. And that's why products like Stripe, this one reason why they're so successful is like everybody's expecting the API to just suck and everybody's expecting the documentation to be bad because it usually is. But actually their API is great and their documentation is great too. And it's a real breath of fresh air to, to see that. Unfortunately, it's not the typical experience. I totally agree. And before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you one more question about testing and yeah. just curious if you've had this situation before. So a big thing with our testing is that we're dealing with ephemeral data. You know, a lot of my tests have to do with future productions and performances that actually exist within our staging environment. And because, you know, these productions do come to pass. So say I have a test that reaches out and says, if this production renders, you know, it's on sale, people are able to buy tickets. Well, that might, that test will pass until that actual production comes up. And now it's no longer for sale because the performance is over. So have you ever dealt with ephemeral data like that? And have you had to create, for us, sometimes I end up creating fake productions that are going to happen in 2030, just so that I can get ahead of that kind of issue. Oh, interesting. Um, first, let me see if I even understand, because I'm not sure that I do yet. It, is, it, is the challenge that it has to do with the passing of time? Is, is that the main thing or is it something else? Yes. So I'm calling out to the API and saying, hey, I have this show. Let's We'll use Hamilton again. And so I have Hamilton coming up and Hamilton, based on the API response, should be on sale. And so that will work all the way up until I'm running those tests after Hamilton has passed. So now the API is going to say, no, it's, it's not for sale anymore. 
And so now I have the technical debt of having to go in and change that test to now look at a different future production. Or I end up having to create a Hamilton production that's going to happen far in the future. So I don't have to worry about my test now failing. I see. Um, if I understand this correctly, the way that I've handled this kind of thing in the past is to use one of the time manipulation tools. So in the past, there was the time cop gem. Now the time cop gem is kind of obsolete because Rails has a built-in method called travel to. So here's a scenario that I had that, again, if I understand correctly, was kind of similar to yours. We had this big switch in our application where we changed from handling certain parts of our accounting in one way to handling them in a fundamentally different kind of way. And this happened on May 12th, 2020. So May 12th, 2020 was an important date and things were different before and after that date. I couldn't run certain tests of mine. Like if there were certain tests of mine that I just left as is, they would have passed before 512 and failed after or the other way around. And so I couldn't just go by the actual real current date and time. So for those, I said, I, I used the, the travel to function and I said like, okay, travel to May 11th before the switch. And I expect things to be like this at this point in time. Now travel to May 13th after the switch, test for these certain things to be this way so that it doesn't matter whether it's really May 1st, 2020 or June 1st, 2020, these certain tests are always frozen at the same point in time. Is that the same thing that you're dealing with or is, or is it something different? That is absolutely what I'm dealing with. And I had not considered that solution. So this is one of my favorite parts about either hosting or guesting a podcast. I end up walking away with such good homework. I'm definitely yeah. going to look into this because I think this might be really helpful for my test suite. Yeah, my favorite thing to do on my podcast is just to ask my guests about the problems that I have in my day-to-day -day work, and and they can just tell me the answers, and it's great. I can get like free consulting from famous people. Not that I'm a famous person or anything like that, but I can like I can have Mike Parham on my show and ask him about Sidekick for my application, and and he'll tell me when else would I have that opportunity, you know. Absolutely. I had Adrian Chang a couple weeks ago from Shopify uh, explain the Strangler fig pattern to me, and that has been a game changer. So I'm completely on your side about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually halfway through that episode right now. I've, I've been listening to it. That's a really good one. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and, and maybe as we head to our conclusion here, I'll say I want to recommend Brittany's podcast to the listener. Um, and it's okay. You don't have to be monogamous to my podcast. I will accept it if you listen to other Ruby podcasts too. So go check out Brittany's show. Um, the last question I'll ask you, Brittany, is where can people go to learn more about the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast, uh, especially if there's any particular episodes you recommend, and where can people go to learn more about you online? Good question. So you can visit me at Brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, dot dev. That'll link out to all of my social media platforms uh, and also to the podcast itself and other guest appearances that I have done. I did not um, 
you know, I have a, a past degree in marketing and for some reason use different handles on each platform. So I recommend going there to be able to link out to everything. And Jason will be guesting on my podcast in the next couple of weeks. So if you have any suggestions or things that you want to hear from Jason, please uh, shoot me a DM on Twitter or you can send me an email. And of course, I have a form on the website as well. It has been an absolute pleasure, Jason. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Yeah, this has been great. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again, too. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks.